All right. Uh, go ahead and open your Bibles to Judges chapter 1, and we're going to be picking it up in verse 22 of Judges chapter 1. All right. Judges chapter 1, starting in verse 22. I'm just going to read it uh, till, from here until the end of the chapter. The house of Joseph also went up against Bethel, and the Lord was with them. And the house of Joseph scouted out Bethel. Now the name of the city was formerly Luz. And the spies saw a man coming from the city, and they said to him, Please show us the way into the city, and we will deal kindly with you. And he showed them a way into the city, and they struck the city with the edge of the sword, but they let the man and all of his family go. And the man went to the land of the Hittites, and built a city, and called its name Luz. And that, and it is the, and that is its name to this day. Verse 27. And Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shean, its villages, or Tanakh and its villages, or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, or the inhabitants of Ibleam and its villages, or the inhabitants of Medigo and its villages, or the Canaanites, for the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in that land. When Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but they did not drive them out completely. And Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer, so the Canaanites lived in Gezer among them. Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants of Kitron, or the inhabitants of Nathalal, so the Canaanites lived among them, but became subject to forced labor. Asher did not drive out the inhabitants of Akko, or the inhabitants of Sidon, or of Alhab, or of Aksib, or of Helba, or of Aphik, or of Rehob. So the Asherites lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land, for they did not drive them out. Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemash, or the inhabitants of Beth Anath. So they lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land. Nevertheless, the inhabitants of Beth Shemash and of Beth Anath became subject to forced labor for them. The, the Amorites pressed the people of Dan back into the hill country, for they did not allow them to come down to the plain. And the Amorites persisted in dwelling in Mount Heres, in, ha- in Ajalon, and in Shalabim. But the hand of the house of Joseph rested heavily on them, and they became subject to forced labor. And the border of the Ammonites ran from the ascent of Akrabim from Selah and upwards. So this is the close of chapter 1 uh, in the book of Judges. And we are almost done with what we consider like the introduction to the book of Judges. Really, the introduction spans from here until chapter 2, verse 5. And we're going to cover that section next week. But uh, by way of reminder, I just want to bring us up to speed on where we've been at the last few weeks uh, to... Uh, kind of coloring the context for where we're in this week. So, so far we've seen uh, the Israelites kind of start out hot in terms of their conquest in the book of Judges, right? We see that after Joshua passes away, they elect Judah, the tribe, to be leaders and rulers over them, to lead them in battle and conquest. And that goes well for a time. Judah and Simeon go together, they conquest the land. There's a lot of faithfulness going on. The Kenites, which are uh, a people group that are not Israelites, but are living with the Israelites, Um, are also kind of included in this promised blessing. And this continues really until chapter 1, verse 19, where we see the first thing go wrong for the Israelites. And it starts with Judah, the leader of this conquest. Judah uh, decides that they're not going to drive out the inhabitants of the plain, and they give then the reason that these inhabitants have chariots of iron. And that really spells what we would consider like the apex point in chapter 1, because after that point, the, the chapter takes on a very different tone. So in the, if you can almost split the chapter at verse 19. And before that point, you will see almost like increasing faithfulness, increasing obedience, conquest, not really anything going wrong. And then at verse 19, 
the tone shifts and there's a pivot. And it starts with Judah. And then as you saw what we just read, it kind of cascades down from Judah until all the other tribes kind of follow in the footsteps of that lead tribe, right? So Judah goes wrong and then all the other tribes follow suit. And this uh, is a violation almost of the conquest or the charge that you see in the book of Joshua chapter 23 that we brought up uh, in the first week. We talked about how Joshua takes all the tribes together and he charges them the same way Moses charged him that they need to be faithful to the Lord their God, they need to drive out the inhabitants of the land, and they need to do this not because God has anything against these people, but because these people are idolaters, they're, they're, they worship false gods, and they're going to lead the people of Israel astray. So it's not an ethnic divide that God has against these people, it's a spiritual divide, right? So that's an important thing for us to underscore because when we see them settling, it might appear to us, especially as Westerners who value peace, it might appear to us as these are wise, pragmatic decisions that are being made, but the tone of the book is not wise and pragmatic. The tone of the book is that this is clear spiritual compromise from the people of Israel, okay? So you, you kind of see that uh, general pattern. And there's another pattern that you might want to note, and we're going to talk more about this uh, as we close out our time uh, in this text. Um, but you can trace the times. Uh, in the English Standard Version of the Bible, the phrase is not drive out. You can trace that pattern. It appears for the first time in verse 19, and then it again, and then it appears one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight more times from 19 to the close of the chapter. And that kind of spells out the continuing demise of the people. And we're gonna, we're gonna see that pattern as we see kind of like the slipping slope, right? But there's really three um, headings or points I wanna put in front of you as we walk through verse 22 till the end of chapter one. Um, and it goes like this. The first one is what we would call the clever compromise that you see. So in, in, chapter, in verse 19 of chapter one, you see the, the strategically wise compromise that Judah does. And then you see the next tribe to compromise after Judah, or the, next, the tribe that we see here, the next tribe that compromises in that same way is the tribe, it's called the house of Joseph. And the house of Joseph is made up of two tribes. It's made up of Manasseh and it's made up of Ephraim, okay? And these two tribes can constitute the house of Joseph. Remember Joseph uh, is in Egypt, so he and he has two sons and each of his sons constitute a tribe in the people of Israel. And so, but they're referred to as the house of Joseph, okay? So both of these tribes compromise in the same way. And again, they're going up against the people and their compromise looks similar to Judah's compromise, right? So in verse uh, 23, their charge is to go scout out Bethel, which is a city in the promised land. Uh, we, we're told that it was formerly called Luz before they possess it and they take it. And the spies see a man coming from the city and they say to him, please show us the way into the city and we will deal kindly with you. Now, if you're a reader and you're, you're kind of following along, this seems like a militarily, a, a wise tactical decision for them to make, right? They need into a city and they're going to use and leverage power in order to get into that city. The problem is not that they're using strategy and tactics. The problem is the, the way in which they're willing to compromise in order to get that information. They're willing to be unfaithful in order to complete faithfulness. Does that make sense? So they're willing to compromise and let this guy go in order to complete faithfulness with the rest of the conquest. And so we begin to see a muddied picture of their kind of faithfulness. Does that make sense? So you see them go into the city. They actually, this guy lets them into the city. They conquest the city. They do exactly what they're supposed to do. They commit it to destruction, but they let this guy and his family go. And that was kind of the deal they make in order to get this back entrance into the city. Okay, so this guy shows them in. They compromise here in order to seemingly be faithful in every other tenant of that conquest, but then they let him go. And I want to contrast this, and I think I mentioned this in week one. You can almost contrast this with what you see in Joshua chapter two with Rahab and the spies. 
right? The, the spies go in to see the city of Jericho. They're scouting it out. Rahab hides them and then lets them out through a window. And before she goes, or before she lets them go, she says, please, when you come to destroy the city, spare me and my family, right? And in the book of Joshua, that's not painted for us as a negative picture. That makes sense? But in Judges, it is, right? And the reason it's painted negatively here and positively there is for one reason. The stories are almost identical except for this one point, which is that Rahab is a fearer of Yahweh. Rahab actually specifically cites when she's giving up the city of Jericho that she's doing so because she wants to leave her old ways behind and be a God follower. She recognizes these spies as being servants of the one true God. That's why she protects them. That is to be contrasted with this guy who's from the city of Luz. He acts in self-preservation selfishly. And we see that because in verse 26, the author informs us that he doesn't actually repent of his ways. When they let him go, he just moves to a different location, deeper into the land away from the Israelites, and he just starts up exactly the same city again. So he's not, he's not saved because he's a God-fearer. They save Rahab because she fears Yahweh. That's why they spare her. In this case, they do it out of compromise. And so that's, that's a big difference between those two narrative accounts. So Joshua chapter 2, and then here Judges uh, tw- chapter 1, 22 through uh, 26. They're, they're analogous stories. They're very similar. But there's one major difference between those two. And that is, is the person who they're sparing, do they spare them because of God? Or do they spare them because of their own tactical advantage that they're going to gain from that, from that saving? Right? So we see, in that case, a clever compromise that the people make right? They do it and they can justify why they've done it. And that was the same thing that we saw Judah do in verse 19. They compromise and they have a good reason, a good practical reason for why they compromise, right? These people have chariots of iron. God certainly wouldn't want his people to die. So we're just going to leave it here. Same thing. They say, well, we need to enter the city. So we're going to compromise, let this guy go in order to gain entrance to the city. And so in doing so, they're leveraging disobedience in order to try to complete a path of faithful obedience. So that's the clever compromise that you see. And then that spells out a pattern that you will see basically to the close of the chapter, which is almost like the slippery slope of compromise. So you see the clever compromise in that section. And then 27 through uh, 33, you're going to see the continuing compromise that happens. And this is a very annoying section for reading because it's almost like the person who's writing this is just driving the point home ad nauseum over and over and over again that the people continually don't drive out the inhabitants of the land, right? I I mentioned earlier, um, you see in verse 27, Manasseh did not drive out. Verse 28, but they did not drive out, drive them out completely. Verse 29, and Ephraim did not drive out. In verse 30, and Zebulun did not drive out. In verse 31, Asher did not drive out. And then verse 32, for they did not drive them out. Verse 33, Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh. You just see that point driven home over and over and over again. And the, the, the person who's writing this is trying to paint for us a picture about what's happening in the text, right? They don't, this is a very cleverly arranged chapter and introduction, right? Chapter one, verse one, through chapter two, verse five is the introduction to the book of Judges. And he's setting up for us the continuing slope of compromise, almost like the fertile breeding ground for what happens in the rest of the book. And he wants to point out to us that it's not just that Judah fails, It's not just that Benjamin fails. It's not just that, in this case, the house of Joseph fails. Actually, every single tribe in Israel is responsible for this failure. It starts with Judah. It starts with the leader. But actually, everyone is complicit in this failure. Every single tribe continually walks in this kind of pattern of disobedience. They're all, in some individual sense, responsible 
for what they're breeding going into the future. And we're going to see in the book of Judges, every single tribe suffers from the lack of leadership and this continuing disobedience. But they all in their own way keep these Canaanites alive. So you kind of see this uh, continuing compromise that happens. This is the same thing that they get warned about in Exodus chapter 23, when Moses uh, is being spoken to by God and God says, when I let you into the promised land, you have to do away with the people who are there because they will be a snare to you and to your people and to your children. And that's the warning God gives to him. So he says, commit them completely to destruction. Don't compromise on this. Don't, don't in any way, shape or form, try to uh, meander away from this kind of obedience because although it might be tempting for you, Israel, it's not a wise decision. And it's not wise because I say it's not wise and it's not wise because they worship false gods and you are prone to wander from worship of the one true God. They do it, right? As soon as Moses goes up on the mountain, he's only there for 40 days and they're already trying to find different ways to worship false gods, right? So it doesn't take them long even without other people to lead them astray. And now they're going to compromise and live with and, and cultivate farms and raise children around non-believers. And they're supposed to believe that somehow they're going to get their act together between now and then. But really what they're doing is they're being stupid. They're being foolish and thinking that they can handle that kind of being led astray by these people. So they compromise. That's also not a warning only in Exodus 23. That's a warning in Exodus 34 and in Deuteronomy 7. Same warning repeated three times when Moses is giving the law to the people. So you see that, right? Israel's job is to eliminate the people of Canaan from the promised land. That's their sole purpose for why they're getting into the land, right? God gives them this land because the people who occupy it are disobedient. And so he gives them the land in order that they can occupy it and they can be faithful to God. And instead of doing that, they kind of become bedfellows with these people, right? The, one of the commentators, uh, I wrote down his quote because I really liked it. Um, he says, the people of Israel in this case are like a surgeon uh, they, who removes only part of the cancer because even a cancer has a right to grow and find its own fulfillment. That's, that's what he equates it to, right? So is that a good or a bad surgeon if their job is to go in and completely remove it? And instead they say, well, we're going to remove most of it. We're going to leave some of it behind, you know, maybe it'll turn its life around, right? Well, God has declared these people to be a cancer to Israel and they, they compromise, they leave it in there. And that is not a good thing, right? That is not a good thing. So here uh, we see their failure over and over. But the other thing that's interesting about this section is the failure is also, it's revealed to us that the failure is not, not because of a lack of power to drive the people out, right? In Judges chapter one, verse 19, they give this like citation to chariots of iron and they say that that's why they didn't, you know, conquest the people of the plain. But in this section, you might've noticed it a few times it's mentioned that when the people grow strong, the first time you'll see this is in verse uh, 28. When Israel grows strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but they did not drive them out completely. Now what's harder to do with military power? To subject a whole group of people to slavery or to drive them out. So they have the military power to drive these people out. They just choose to use their power to cultivate a resource as opposed to getting rid of it. So they see it as almost like a tactical advantage to them to keep the people around and leverage them as opposed to driving them out. So it's not that they don't have the means to drive them out. God actually makes them strong enough to do that and yet they still don't drive these people out. And that's, again, that's not only there. You'll see that, uh, I wrote down the verses. You see it in verse 28. You see it in verse 30. You see it in verse 33. And you'll see the same thing in verse 35 as well. They have the strength to enslave these people, but instead of driving them out, they enslave them. So it's not because of military inability. It's because of unfaithfulness, right? So the author of this section is clearly spelling out for us 
that it's a faithful, it's a, it's a compromise in obedience, not a compromise in their military power, right? He, he's giving them really no out, no excuse for why this is happening, right? He kind of continually repeats that theme. So, um, and, and just, to, just to quote that same author again, um, he, he, he references uh, that this is something you can spell out for churches today as well, that what you're seeing here is that this kind of compromise doesn't immediately lead to a punishment from God. And what this does for us is this can, this can point us to the fact that you can have what looks like on the surface success or what looks like on the surface profit or benefit, but what on the inside is actually a complete lack of faithfulness. And he spells this out today for churches. You can have churches that are profitable in every way, right? They have people that come, they've got good worship music, they can preach and teach, and they might stray. And their initial straying isn't immediately met with punishment from God, but over time, over a long period of time, they're sowing the seeds of their own demise, right? And the people of Israel here are sowing the seeds for their own demise, but it's not like they don't drive the people out and immediately they're punished for it. It's almost like that the very punishment that they're gonna get is that what the people who they decide to, to shack up with are the very people who are gonna be their destruction in the future. So it's not an immediate kind of punishment. And so what you're seeing is a military growth in the people of Israel and they make bedfellows with these people and then they continue to be strong to the point where they can subject these people to forced labor. They're still profiting. They're still being power. They're still a powerful nation. God is still blessing them in that way with success, but they're still there. We're not to misunderstand success with faithfulness. If that makes sense. We're not supposed to cultivate those two things. They're not necessarily correlated. Often success and faithfulness are linked, but not always. You can have success and be unfaithful. And the people of Israel kind of exemplify that for us. And then that brings us to the, the really the last section uh, in this text in verse 34 to 36, which is um, the catastrophic failure. So you see the, the initial uh, military failure that they do, they, they make an excuse for it. Then you kind of see the slippery slope of failure. And then this last one, the, ver, verse 34, spells out for us not that they don't drive the people out, but actually now the people of the promised land are driving them out. So the judge, the, the person who writes the section is arranging it in such a way where you see them start to compromise, you see them continually compromising, and in the very last section of chapter one, you see now they're actually turning tail and running away from these people, right? The Amorites press the people of Dan back into the hill country, and they do not allow them to come down to the plain. So the people of Dan are actually driven away from the plain. They're driven back by the people of the promised land, which is a reversal of what's supposed to be happening. So even in chapter one, we're getting almost the initial taste of what's going to happen in the rest of the book, that this compromise is leading somewhere. You allow them to stick around, they're going to grow back strong, and when they grow back strong, they're not going to be peaceable with you, they're going to kill you. And so it starts there with the people of Dan. So you see this, this reversal, right? So what, what, what this kind of spells out for us is that there's no such thing as what we would call a small faithfulness, right? Jesus says in Luke 16, he who is faithful in little will be faithful in much. That's a teaching of Jesus. And here we see the people of Israel, if they're faithful in little, they'll be faithful in much. But if they're not faithful in the little things, we shouldn't expect them to be faithful in the big things. And there's really no such thing as a small amount of faithfulness because their seemingly small compromises here is actually what spells out generational destruction for the people. So there's no such thing as big or little obedience, right? Every single step of obedience is either a step towards faithfulness in God or a step away from faithfulness in God. Okay, and we can kind of bring that out to some some application here, right? The book of Proverbs tells us that a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to the rest, and poverty comes upon you like a robber. That's wisdom from the book of Proverbs. And what that tells us is that all 
kinds of compromise, like the big day of reckoning where we kind of see our sin rear its head, it always starts years, months, decades before that unveiling, right? It's a little bit here, a little bit there, a little compromise over here, and then it ultimately rears its head and shows itself to us. And we see that kind of being spelled out for the people of Israel here. They're, they're not met with immediate destruction, right? We have to take a few more chapters into the book of Judges before we see how bad it actually gets. But we're not to understand this as somehow God's okay with what's happening. He's told them he's not okay with it, and he's going to let them know exactly how bad it is, right? And we're going to look more at that next week when the angel of the Lord directly speaks to them. But you see this pattern continually in scripture, right? The slippery slope starts somewhere. In King David's life, you see that he is initially a faithful king, then he stays back for a little while, then he finds himself in a place where his men are at war, he's at home, and he's the king, he's supposed to be leading them in battle, and that's when he sets himself up to take someone else's wife, because he's not at war leading the people like he should be. But he started that pattern a long time before that. You see in King Solomon's life, if you're reading the M. Shane plan, we're reading about King Solomon right now, and you can see the trajectory of his life. He starts off faithful, starts off wise, and you kind of see him start to take wives, and you're like, oh, I don't know if that should be happening, right? And then he builds the house of God, and then then he builds his own house, and he builds his own house with way more splendor, way more glory than he builds the house of God. And you're starting to get a picture painted of his character. And then, as the chapters unfold, you see, oh, Solomon's actually headed in a really bad direction. But you could actually trace that back to several chapters earlier where you see the pattern start to kick up, right? And this is a continuing pattern that we see in Scripture. So, I suppose the question we can close with and then open up discussion with um, is this. And I always think it's a great question. In what ways... Are we creating slippery slopes in our own lives? And what is a way in which we can head off or spell or identify that slippery slope ahead of time and almost cut it off at the root? So before something rears its head, how can you cut it off before it becomes a danger to you? And then in what ways, you know, do you allow things to become dangerous? So what are things that we're okay with compromising? And then how do we head those off?